0: Yeah, Shannon and I were just talking, um, the church that I currently serve is my first church, and uh, I count it a joy and a privilege and a great honor to have served Grace Covenant Baptist Church uh, for 17 years. Now, I'm a little bit out of my element here today. Because this would be the point in time on the Lord's Day that I would say, let us return to our ongoing study of whatever we're in. Uh, For 10 years, off and on, it was the book of Deuteronomy. Um, I preached expositionally, verse by verse, through the entire book of Deuteronomy, by God's grace. And so I think uh, people at different times really got tired of hearing, turn to Deuteronomy such and such. Now, we took breaks and did different things there, but... But I believe in the systematic, verse-by-verse exposition of God's Word. The Bible is sufficient to handle whatever issue uh, we may be facing. Not only the point of salvation, but every day in our sanctification, our being conformed to the image of Christ. I have to admit that it is a daunting task for just a preacher like me. just this guy who lives in West Monroe, Louisiana, pastors a church. It is a daunting task to stand here today in the shadow of, of men such as what we have heard and to give some degree of a contribution to the discussion at hand. As I was thinking about the law of God, I was drawn to paragraph six. Now, Dr. Renahan was mentioning, which I found extremely helpful, thank you, brother, the the breakdown of uh, chapter 19 and the seven paragraphs that are found there, that in paragraph six, there is a shift. I didn't know what to call it when I was reading it, but I said, yeah, there's something changed here. And it's really kind of, I think, in a sense, taking the historical redemptive narrative and and elucidation of the facts that are found in the first uh, five paragraphs of that particular chapter and then moving it to a practical application. Now, I'm a practical guy. I spent almost uh, 30 years in the construction trades, construction management, before I surrendered to full-time ministry. Uh, I'm a brick-and-mortar kind of guy. I believe in being practical. Uh, That doesn't mean I despise theology. I love theology, but I I think we should practically apply uh, those things that we learn. And so the men who have gone before me have done me a great service in laying the foundation for the message that I want to bring to us today today entitled, Stop in the Name of the Law. That doesn't sound very Puritan, does it? You know, as I was thinking about this as kids, we used to play games all the time. We would play cops and robbers. We would play uh, cowboys and Indians, you know. But it seemed like we were always divided into good guys and bad guys. And invariably, somewhere along the line, somebody who had been bested by their opponent would resort to this phrase, Stop! In the name of the law, well, the bad guy in those days automatically would stop. Oh, game over. I surrender. Name of the law. Here we go. But in that idea, we find this, this simple truth that a law is only as good or effective as the community that is willing to obey it. Think about that for a minute, that a law is only as good as the community that is willing to obey it. Now, I have to admit, I'm not one who follows or subscribes to this newfangled thing in the internet that Mark actually tells me is not new at all, AI, this artificial intelligence thing that you people are hearing. No, my message is not written by AI, so don't worry. But as I was researching this phrase about the law only being as good as the community or the culture that will follow it, being actually had something that was very insightful. Now, it pulled it from a bunch of different other things, but I, I want to read it to you and kind of set the context. It says, The phrase, a law is only as good as the community that is willing to obey it, that's the information I put in, means that the effectiveness of a law depends upon the willingness of the people to follow it or that the people perceive the law to be a just law. This phrase highlights the importance of social norms and values in shaping the behavior of individuals within a community and suggests that laws are not just a set of rules imposed by an authority, but rather a reflection of the shared values and beliefs of the community. The law can only be as effective as it is supported by the community and if the people believe that is a just and fair law. go one step further in this idea, Elizabeth Caddy Stanton in 1860, she was a, a woman's right, woman's suffrage champion. She said, to make laws that man cannot and will not obey serves to bring all law into contempt. It is very important in the republic that the people should respect the laws for if we throw them to the winds, what becomes of civil government? Now these are just people well, being's not a person, but it's based on some people who have said some things. These are just folks that are making comments about what we might consider to be our civil law. And I understand. You're, I see the wheels turning in your mind. You're going, well, what does is, what is the law of our land, the law of our nation have to do with the law of God? Well, I think it has a lot to do with the law of God because it exists, any law exists, Because the concept of law itself comes from God. Anything that exists comes from the mind of God. If it didn't come from the mind of God, it doesn't exist. So we see within our civil structure, within our society, that the very idea of the moral law that we've been talking about, the law that's written on our hearts, that has been codified through societies and governments in certain legal codes. And that law is only as good as the people who are willing to follow it. Now, I understand that in our lost and sinful condition, we do not esteem the law of God. We don't follow the law of God. We couldn't care less about the law of God in our lost condition. And so that natural man, lost man, cannot, will not, and doesn't want to follow God's law. And we see that in that The expression of God's law codified by culture is broken again and again, day in and day out, by the citizens of that particular culture. I am so thankful for Dr. Renahan. He's mentioned last night on two separate occasions, speed limits, right? I think that's something that we all can relate to. Uh, I would be willing to venture that the majority of us who drove here at some point in time in our journey did not observe the speed limit, either by accident or intentionally. We are people who are given to breaking the law. We, don't, we really don't want to follow the law. And that's a real problem. But the Scripture tells us that there is an answer to this dilemma. And I believe the answer is found in the text that uh, Brother Kurt, right ahead of me, uh, set the stage for in Romans chapter 6. So take your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 6. I'm not going to read through it again for time. I'm going to be pressed to get done as it is. But I believe that in verses 12 through 14 of Romans 6, that Paul has given us three conclusions that we can draw from the text that are related to this, that we are moving from a state where we don't do something to a state where we do do something. Here's what I mean. You see, if we remember that the law of God no longer is the means of salvation, which is what uh, chapter 19, paragraph 6, sentence 1 basically says, that the law cannot save us, then we have to remember that the law is actually the light that shows us the grace of Christ. Right? The law is a tutor that moves us towards Christ. I think we would all agree with that. But how does it move move us towards Christ? What is the change within us that that moves us to consider the law? And and not to see the law as a means of salvation, but a law that governs our behavior, that somehow uh, informs us of what is good, what is right, what is wrong. And so the three conclusions that I want to mention today in the time that we have is this, and I'm just going to tell you real quick and then I'll expound upon them. Conclusion number one that there is an ontological transaction that has occurred in the life of the believer leading us to honor the law of God. Number two, there's a, the second conclusion, that there is a federal transference that has occurred in the life of the believer leading to submission to the law. And then thirdly, that there is a divine translation that has occurred in the life of the believer leading to the love of the law. Now, you'll, under, you'll recognize honor, submit, and love those are all qualities of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the Lord Jesus Christ honored the law of, God, law of God perfectly. He submitted to the law perfectly, and he honored and loved the law perfectly. And if we are being conformed into the image of Christ, if we are being moved from our lost condition to a condition or a state in which we are more like Christ today than we were yesterday, and maybe not so much as we will be tomorrow, then we must start honoring the law, submitting to the law, and loving the law. That's exactly what my brother ahead of me, Kurt, was alluding to in the hour ahead of us. That there are specific touch points within the life of the believer that show us whether or not this divine transaction has occurred, whether or not we are being conformed into the image of Christ. You see, it's just not good enough within church life to say, I love Jesus. We love Jesus, but what does that look like? And that's what I want to share with us today. So let's go back to the first one. The conclusion number 1 that the there is an ontological transaction that has occurred in the life of the believer leading to the honoring of the law of God in Romans chapter 6 verse 12 we find these words, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body but make you to make you obey its passions. Did you notice that the phraseology Paul says to make you obey its passions you see there's a sense in which in our in our lost state we are driven by things by passions yes they're resident in us but i believe there's a spiritual quality that even goes beyond us doesn't we're not flip wilson you know the devil didn't make me do it i'm not saying that but what i am saying is is that there is a sense in which our lustful passions, the passions, the, the thought processes, the, the values of this world move us as the lost ones of this world to act in a way that really is perhaps not something we might want to do otherwise, but we are moved by it. That's what it means to be enslaved to sin. But you see, if I go from being in that condition to being conformed into the image of Christ where I'm honoring the law of God, then I have to have an ontological transaction. There has to be a change in nature that occurs. You know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, right? The old things have passed the new things have come. Well, what's some of the old things that have passed? Well, the fact that in our old self, our lost condition, we don't honor the law of God, nor do we honor the law of the land. We have become a law, literally, unto ourselves, right? We make up the rules. And as I've listened to the discussion over the last several days about New Covenant theology and some of these other theological systems that are trying, I'm assuming they're trying to take out the law of God so that we can begin to write the law for ourselves. I think we're right back in the same thing. We just want to do what we want to do, right? We want to do what we want to do. Doesn't matter whether God said it. Doesn't matter whether mom and dad said it. Doesn't matter whether the civil magistrate says it. That I come up with all kinds of very cool and, ingenious ways to do what I want to do so I don't get caught? Or if I get caught, then I can blame somebody else? Oh, that sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? That woman you gave me made me eat. Boy, it's not my fault. The serpent made me do it, right? We're very ingenious about trying to find ways to do what we want to do and get away with it. But as a Christian, we know that that's not possible. We shouldn't and can't do that. And I would argue that that ontological transaction, that change of nature is what begins to move us to honor the law of God. Now, why would I say this? Well, I'm going to back up a little bit to the first part of Romans chapter 6 and try to do a very quick exposition of the verses between verse 1 and verse 12 that I think help to support these three conclusions. In verse 1 of chapter 6, we find these words. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin, that is the old self, that grace may abound? Paul says, absolutely not. See, what's happened here at the beginning of verse 1, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, is Paul has just concluded his discussion of the first Adam and the second Adam. That in the first Adam that there's a transgress, transgression and that sin was spread to all men through the federal headship of Adam. But then he contrasts that to the Lord Jesus Christ who brings grace and saves those who are found in sin, born in sin, and by grace brings them out of sin so that they no longer live in sin, that they live in the grace and the glory of God. And so we find in this, at this juncture of Romans 6 that... What's going on is that we have a new nature. How can we, how can we who died sin, to sin still live in it? The question is, how is it that if there's been this ontological transaction, died, which is uh, Greek grammar, just an indicative, but I think it's interesting. It's in the uh, oristic aspect. So Paul's not really giving us any details here necessarily of what dying looks like. He's just simply saying that we who have died... To sin, how can we still live in that sin? If, I have, if I'm no longer by my death to sin through Jesus Christ, if I am no longer one who is bound in sin, if I'm not enslaved in sin by the work of Jesus Christ, then how can I live in that sin? It just doesn't make sense to say uh, that I'm an LSU fan, but I worship Alabama. Okay, nobody bought on that one. Okay. Okay. How is it? Well, the reality is is you can't. Uh, if we have a new nature, and if we truly have died to sin, and we're going to talk about that in further detail as we go, then there's no way that I can still live in that sin. I have a new nature. I also have a new identity. I don't know if you caught that. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, eras pastive vindicative, into Christ, were baptized into his death? You see, we identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been baptized into Christ. We were baptized into his death. Now, baptized to employ water in a religious ceremony designed to symbolize purification and initiation on the basis of repentance. That's Launita talking about baptism. What what does that mean? Well, it means that we've undergone a rite, a ceremony that isn't saving in and of itself, it's not baptismal regeneration, but what it does is it clearly demarcates the believer as being somebody new and that new person is one that is being identified with Christ, raised to walk in the newness of life, right? We say that in our baptismal ordinance. That as a Christian, one who has undergone this religious ceremony, this baptism, I now identify with Christ. That is my identity. It's not just I identify with him. That's who I am. What is the name that we typically take upon ourselves to describe our religious perspective? No, I don't mean Baptist or Reformed Baptist or 1689 Confessional Baptist. What do we call ourselves? Christians. You see, I am who Christ has made me to be. I am to do what Christ has called me to do. I am to think the thoughts of Christ. I am to speak the words of Christ. I am to love my neighbor as myself and to honor and love God with everything I have. Why? Because That's who I am. That's my identity. And in Christ, when I have died to sin and been baptized with Christ and raised to walk in the newness of life, then I have a new identity. But not only that, I now have a new motivation. Verse 4, we're buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, we too walk in the newness of life. You say, I no longer walk and live and think and talk and value the way I used to. I live and talk and think and value a new way now, Christ's way. And not just a simple observance of the law. Let's not make that mistake. My newness of life is not just rules and regulations or ordinances that have been imposed upon me from outside and exterior law. The reality is I do all of this for the glory of God. And it doesn't matter whether or not I am recognized. It doesn't matter whether or not I am successful. It doesn't matter whether people know me. It doesn't matter whether I sell books or have podcasts or that anybody outside of my church even knows who I am because I'm not doing it for that. I'm doing it for the glory of God. My new motivation is the glory of God. Whatever I do, whether I eat, whether I drink, wherever I go, I do it for the glory of God the new motivation. But I would suggest to us brothers and sisters today that I can't do any of that. I don't have a new nature. I don't have a new identity. And I certainly don't have a new motivation without the ontological translation or transaction that occurs through the the sacrifice, the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't do it. If I'm not in Christ, I'm still the old man. If I'm not in Christ, I'm still under the law. It's only through the blood of Christ that I can realize my new nature, my new identity, and then move in my new motivation. Andrew Gray put it this way. He said, when at first Christians begin to be acquainted with Christ, even then sometimes he declares to them his boundless and everlasting love. And this is the ground of why some of these, even who are babes in Christ, are so much in the exercise of diligence, so much in the exercise of the grace of love, and so much in the exercise of the grace of tenderness, it is even because of the solemn impression of their interest in Christ. What is Gray talking about? He's saying that as Christ reveals His love, His mercies, His kindnesses, His salvation to them, even though they may not know anything other than I've trusted in Christ for the salvation of my soul, I've repented of my sin. They may not know anything about the threefold workings of the law. They may not know anything about New Testament uh, covenant theology, New Covenant theology. They may not know anything about the lapse or decrees or ordinances or any of that stuff. They are still interested in Christ, and they do so with the exercise of diligence and the exercise of the grace of love and the grace of tenderness because Christ has made a difference in their lives. He's changed them. And so that's the first conclusion, that I have to have an ontological transaction. I have to be moved from one place in life that I was born into to another place in life that Christ moves me to and when that happens, I begin to honor the law. Well, honoring the law brings me to the second conclusion. And that is that there's a federal transference that it has occurred in the life of the believer, leading to the submission, their submission to the law. Back to Romans chapter 6, verse 13. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 13, do not present present active imperative, that, that is a command, that's not a polite suggestion it's not if you feel like it or if you want to paul says you must do this okay do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness but present same word uh, yourselves to god as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to god as instruments for righteousness The word present here means to stand along or stand besides. It really has the idea of this identity that I was just talking about a minute ago. That ontological transaction where I am moved and I made a new creature. Well then as that occurs, my identity is new. Just mentioned that. But my identity is in my federal head. My identity is the one who I now serve, the one whom I love, the one whom I cherish, the one who has told me all the truth about me, has told me all the truth about him. There is a federal transference that occurs. And when that, that transference occurs, then we see submission to the law. I, don't, I no longer um, stand alongside those things that are contrary to the word of God. I'd no longer stand and claim, yes, my identity with those things that are rebellious or unrighteous. As a matter of fact, Paul says, don't do that. You can't do that, but rather present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. I present myself to God. I am the one As Christians who stands along with God or beside God or identifies with God, and says, yes, I am a follower of Christ. Yes, I love Christ. Yes, I believe Christ. Yes, I'm submitted to Christ. You see, I can say all those things, right? I can say that I said a prayer, walked an aisle, signed a card, but what does that buy me? What does religious observance buy me? What does it get me? if it's not rooted and grounded in Christ? Well, it makes me religious. I talk a lot at our church about the religious lost. We live in the Bible Belt. This is the South. Everybody's a Christian. Why is everybody a Christian? Because my grandma was a Christian. Why are you a member of this church? Because my grandma was a member of this church. Never mind, I haven't been here for 10 years, but my grandma was a member of this church, so that makes me a member of the church, right? Now, you really want to set your church on fire and and see how things are going. Start clearing off the rolls from all the grandmothers. See what happens. It's just part of our culture. And there there are literally, I think, thousands of people that we interact with in our communities day in and day out who have said the prayer, walked the aisle, signed the card, disturbed the baptismal font, whether it was dunked, Uh, sprinkled, spat upon, or whatever, and they haven't had the federal transference that is required. They love their church. They love their pastor. They love their denomination. And I would warn us, brothers, as 1689 confessional Baptists, that this is a danger we need to be careful of. Let us not identify as 1689 folks only. I mean, I'm 1689, right? As my dear, dear, dear beloved brother uh, Earl Blackburn says, I am a 32-point Calvinist, right? But that's not really my federal head. Our our Baptist forefathers, our particular Baptist forefathers who framed the 1689 and all of the the additions that came before and all of that, that, they're not my federal head. They may be my forefathers who have paved the way, but my federal head is Christ. And I must be transferred under the federal headship of Christ because otherwise I am under the federal headship of Adam. That's exactly what Paul was discussing in chapter 5 from about verse 12 down to the end of chapter 5. There must be a federal transference, a change in who is Lord in our lives. So having said that, to continue in our motif of Very brief exposition, I want to point our attention to Romans 6, verse 5. Romans 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall surely be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, in a sense, this is a citizenship. We are transferred, we're moved from one kingdom to the next. And I'm going to talk a little more about that in a second. But we have a new citizenship. We are no longer citizens of this lost world in Christ. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. If we have been united, that is closely associated in a shared experience or a shared, uh, um, a shared experience, then we, have, we are of the same citizenry. And if we've been united with him in a death, that's, that's baptism, then we shall be united with Him in His resurrection. We are no longer the the people that we used to be. We we live life differently. We have a different association. We pursue different things. I mentioned that a minute ago with our motivations. We are are citizens of the kingdom. Now, I don't have it here, but I just want to interject briefly. We're not just citizens. We're actually adopted children. And I I so appreciate uh, that chapter of our confession that talks about adoption, and, and for those of you who know my wife and I, adoption is very, very near and dear to our heart. Our son is adopted. But we're adopted as children of God so that we're not just citizens. We're not just kingdom citizens. We actually are sons and daughters of God, right? We can cry, Abba, Father. We can, and we are told in Scripture that we consider Christ as our brother. Now, that doesn't give us license to act badly. I'm just saying that, that there is a a new position for the believer in Jesus Christ. And I'm saying here that it's a citizenship. I'm also saying that we have a new freedom. This identity that we get um, in Christ is not just a citizenship. It's not just that we are, we're in a particular kingdom, but that we have a freedom. Look at Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We have a freedom. I think it's interesting that um, this text from 1 to 14 is relatively sparse in the participial form of the Greek New Testament. Um, I've asserted for a long time that participles are not primarily... Um, concerned with an action, but the participles in the more nuanced versions of them actually are pointing to why that action is being done. Not the action itself, but why it's being done. It's an ontology-type work. It's a nature-type work. And so we have here one of the the few occasions of um, participles here in verse 6. It's a present active participle. And so we're knowing ones now. Definitionally, this is uh, gnosko. This is the experiential knowledge, as opposed to oida, which is the uh, intuitive knowledge. Okay, but we know we have by by the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, by by the work of Christ in this transactional. Uh, uh, event occurring in the life of the believer, we know that our old self is crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be brought to nothing. That is, that the condemnation of sin is brought to nothing, that the penalty of sin uh, is brought to nothing. Now, we're still in the presence of sin and we're having to struggle with that, but that we are no longer enslaved to that. We don't have to. Now, I don't know whether you've caught that or not. That's a revelation in many ways in my own walk with the Lord is that I don't have to sin. And if I don't have to sin, then the reality is, is that many times I choose to. Amen or oh me. But I don't have to. I've got a new freedom in Christ. And I think that's why The Bible tells us that we're to take every thought and make it captive. That sin is born out of our desires and we ponder them in the book of James until it's conceived and it gives birth to those actions. As a Christian, we don't have to do that. We've been given the way out, right? There's no temptation known to you guys that's unique to you, but with the temptation, God will give you a way out, right? But we have to learn what it means to be freed from our sin. We have to, we have to study and, and pursue Christ and, and submit to the law. That's where we are so that we can avoid the temptation and the sin that comes our way. Now, sadly, we in ignorance and all kinds of other uh, injustice and anger and bitterness, we still succumb to those sins. Praise God that we have been forgiven of those sins through the blood of Christ, and we can go to Him to receive restoration in our our day-to-day relationship where it's broken by sin, by repentance and confession. But we can learn how to overcome the sin that is in our lives by submitting to the law of God. And I think that is, at least in some measure, what paragraph 6 of chapter 19 tells us. Is it not? If you've got it. I'm going to be Dr. Renahan for just a second. If you got it, you can turn to that paragraph, chapter 19, verse 6. In the the middle of um, that paragraph, it says... The law is also useful to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions because it forbids sin. The punishment threatened by the law shows them that even their sins deserve what troubles they may expect in this life due to their sin, even though they've been freed from the curse and the undiminished severity of it. The promises of the law likewise show them God's approval of obedience and the blessings they may expect when they keep it, even though these blessings are not, now catch this, not owed to them by the law. As As a covenant of works. Right? So, submission to the law helps hedge us against uh, the vestiges, the attacks of sin. That we are no longer enslaved to sin, but that we have been given a newfound freedom in Christ so that we can follow His word, submit to His law, and rise above it. And then we have a new purpose. Because we're a citizen of Christ, of the kingdom of Christ, we have a new freedom. That's our identity. We also have a new purpose. Romans 6, verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. You have been set free from sin. Set free from sin. That's a new purpose. See, I have a new purpose to live in holiness and righteousness, to follow the Word of God, to submit to the law of God, to allow that submission to yield fruit in my life so that I am not the person I used to be. I'm the person Christ has created me to be. That my associations in the world begin to diminish where my associations in Christ begin to increase and it just on and on and on and on and on and on. I now, the life I now live, I live by the Son of God who gave himself for me. It's not me who lives. It's Christ who lives in me. So I have a new purpose. And one of those purposes is to be salt and light in this lost world. You see, it, it really goes beyond just that Tuesday evening visitation time that we as a church have. It goes beyond the evangelistic type programs that we have in the spring or we have at the fall. It goes beyond the Christmas cantatas and the Easter passion plays. It goes to whatever I do in any moment of any day, my purpose is to communicate to anybody around me what Christ has done in my life. That I have an ontological transaction and where I am not the old man, I am the new man and I am now honoring the law and that I have a federal transference and that I'm no longer bound under the tyranny of Satan but I am living in the life of Christ and because of that I'm submitting to His word or submitting to His law. Right? I think that's really what Paul was driving at as he spoke to the church at Corinth. He's talking about marriage and, and um, you know, giving yourself to immorality, several different issues going there in, in that church of Corinth. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Do you not know? Do you not know that as, as a wife is attached to her husband in marriage, that she no longer is who she was, I mean, at least in name, Before she got married, now her identity is in her husband and she follows his headship. Now, I realize that gets sideways in this world that we live in. But, But her identity is in her husband. And so Paul's saying, look, do you not know that like a wife and her husband, that you are members of Christ, that Christ is your head? So shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? We don't look kindly upon uh, husbands or wives who are, uh, who are unfaithful to their marriages, do we? we? We find that to not only be a grievous sin, but an abomination to the purity of the marriage covenant, right? And we, we frown on that and we try to prevent that. Uh, I think the church has fallen down in that in a lot of ways, but that's a topic for another day. I don't know what chapter is marriage If it's 10 years from now, maybe I'll get to speak again because it was 10 years ago, was the last time I spoke, so maybe it'd be 10 10 years, I don't know. Okay. But we're, we're part of Christ. Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ, that we identify with Christ, that he's our head? We find that with the church. Isn't Christ the head of the church? Isn't the church made up of a body of different members and... Some have these strengths and some have those strengths, but the ones who have really cool strengths can't say to the ones who have not-so-cool strengths, you've got not-so-cool strengths, so we don't want you. Is that how that works? No, of course not. The body is one, and we need all of it to function properly. But the reality is the body, even if it's functioning the way it's supposed to, doesn't function well without Christ as the head. A church can have it all down. I mean, administratively down. They can have their messaging down. They can have a whole marketing department. They've got media. They've got all kinds of stuff. But if Christ is not the head of that church, they are just another business. That's all they are. We have to have the federal transference. We have to be moved under the headship of Christ if we're going to be submissive to the law. And I would argue that if we have Christ as our head, that we take on His nature and we begin to be submissive to the law in a way that we have never been submissive before. Which brings me to the third point. Wow, I'm doing good. Yikes. How'd that happen? Time-wise. Content of the message, I'll leave that to y'all, okay? Um, Third conclusion... There is a divine translation that has occurred in the life of the believer leading to the love of the law. So we've talked about an ontological transaction. We've talked about a federal transference. And now we're talking about a divine translation. Romans 6, verse 14. Thank you, Kurt. You Brother, you have, again, you've made my life a lot easier with your exposition of this particular verse Just a moment ago. For if sin sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. You see, Paul is assuming here, at least for the sake of argument, that the audience has been translated. They've been moved from being condemned by the law. That's what it means to be under the law condemnation and their rebellion, they've been moved from that to grace, that is forgiven and restored. And I think he's pointing out, conclusively, he's pointing out that that divine translation has to occur. And if that divine translation has occurred, then you'll begin to love the law. Isn't that what Jesus said? If you love me, you'll attend every Sunday at church. You'll be the biggest giver in the church. You'll you'll go out and you will absolutely sacrifice your time, your talent, and your family to feed the homeless, educate the ignorant, clothe those who have no clothes, to make a difference in society, to somehow be a social warrior. If you love me, you will do these things. Is that what Jesus said? Well, not exactly. Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? What? Keep my commandments. It's interesting to me, the word keep there means to guard. It doesn't just mean to have it, put it in a box, put it up on a shelf. Next time you think about it, go pull it out, dust it off, use it. No, the word keep means to guard. It means it's something that's valuable. Every time I leave the house, I always lock the front door. Okay, that makes sense, right? I bet you do the same thing. The difference is my wife and son are on the inside. They're home. Now, if Asher's at school, Nancy's at home. But when I leave and I know Nancy is at home by herself, I lock the door. Why? I'm keeping her. Now, I know that sounds really weird. (laughs) She is free to go as she pleases. She has a car. (laughs) Uh, Note to self, don't use that illustration. (laughs) But I love Nancy. I'm guarding Nancy. I'm keeping Nancy. And it's the same thing. You see, I think sometimes we have this idea of of keeping the law as just this, well, I got to be good, right? If, If I want to here, well done, my good and faithful servant. I got to be good. And that's true. We do. But you see, that thought is the imposition of an external standard that we are embracing, but it's still an external standard. I'm doing it because I want God to be pleased with me. Why are we not doing what we're supposed to do? Why are we not following the word of God because we love God. As we don't walk with the wicked. Why are we not doing that because we love God? As we do not stand with the sinner. Why are we not doing that because we love God? When we are not sitting with a scoffer, why are we not doing that? Because we love God. As we meditate upon his word day and night, why are we not doing that? Because we love God. Oh, I love the idea of being a tree planted by streams of water. I love the idea of bearing fruit in due season. I love the idea that my leaf will never wither. But why are we not doing that for the love of God? You see what I'm saying? It might be because positionally we have received a divine translation, but practically we're not living in it practically those sinners that I that I walk with wicked that I walk with ooh they produce some really good shows on netflix don't they those sinners that I stand with you see they affirm all the things about me that are cool and worldly and I get acceptance from them. I sit in the seat of scoffers because they keep me entertained, right? Positionally, I've been translated. Practically, I'm not living in it. And you want to know what I think one of the greatest evidences of this practical Lack of translation is, we don't love the law of God. Because if we love the law of God, the law of God tells us clearly, as we've just enumerated in Psalm 1, that I can't do those things. I shouldn't do those things. It's not wise to do those things. And those that do those things will be like the chaff. They'll be blown away. They won't stand in the congregation of the righteous. Right? So there has to be a divine translation that occurs in the life of the believer that moves us to love the law of God. You're no longer under law. You're no longer condemned in your rebellion, but you're under grace. You've been forgiven. You've been restored. And when you're forgiven and restored, who wouldn't love the one who forgave you and restored you? You know, there have been instances and times in my life where I've done stupid things, right? I'm probably the only one here. I know y'all don't do that. And to do stupid things is painful. Would you agree? It hurts. And the stupider the thing, the more it hurts. And reconciliation and forgiveness and repentance hurt too, don't they? To go to somebody and say, I have done the most stupidest thing I could ever do before you. I, not only have I offended God, but I have offended you. And I understand your anger with me. I understand your bitterness towards me. I understand that you don't want to have anything to do with me right now because of my stupidness, my sin, my transgression before you. To confess that, that's painful. But to be restored is sweet. It may take time, it may not happen immediately, but through continued confession and repentance, the administration of the Word of God at that particular situation, restoration is possible. And not only is restoration possible, in Christ, restoration is very probable. And that restoration is extremely sweet. I would argue this is the sweetness of Christ in that relationship, in that transaction that makes it so sweet. And when that sweetness comes, I think love is bolstered. Love is encouraged. Love is strengthened. You know, God in His divine providence could have made marriages a little more like Adam and Eve in the garden pre-fall. He could have, couldn't He? As a man and a woman is united together in Christ, he could have mystically through the divine power of the Holy Spirit made it to where husbands and wives don't fight much anymore, right? They aren't at cross purposes. There aren't stupid things. But you know, the Lord didn't necessarily do that. I mean, it's not love that binds a a marriage together. It's Christ that binds a marriage together because Anybody who's been married more than about 30 days knows that love changes, <laughs> right? You don't may not love like you used to. You may not love in the same ways that you used to. You may not even be able to love in the ways that you first loved when you were first married. Uh, your life changes. And if love is what keeps a marriage together, then there would be no stability in, in marriage. But Christ is what keeps a marriage together. Does it have love in it? Absolutely it does in all of its manifestations, but it's Christ that keeps the marriage together. And so as healing and reconciliation and repentance and confession is administered in the life of a husband and a wife in covenant marriage and restoration comes and Christ is in the middle of it, the Holy Spirit is binding them together, then the sweetness of that marriage grows over time. And the love of that marriage grows over time. So that the reason why you love one another may not be the same as it was when you first started, but it is certainly stronger than what it was when you first started. You see? In a sense, in that marriage relationship, I would suggest that that is a microcosm, an example, an illustration of the divine translation that occurs in the life of the believer when Christ takes us out of our sin and depravity, and moves us into fellowship with him. It's not easy. Stupid mistakes are made. Confession is required. But restoration and healing and forgiveness are offered. And it is so sweet. It is so, it's just so great. And love is strengthened. And in this case, it's love for Christ. And if it's love for Christ, then it's love for his word. It's love for his law. But don't take my word for it. Take Paul's word for it. Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 to 13, a verse that anybody who's been to seminary knows, right? Giving thanks to the Father who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have forgiveness, redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, right? Oh, and by the way, that's not the only place that the Bible teaches us that transference. We don't build doctrines off of singular passages. So here's just a real quick list. I'm just going to mention them, if you don't mind, just to illustrate the point. This transference from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of uh, light or from death to life or Satan to Christ... Are in one way or another presented in the following: Proverbs 16.1, Romans eight twenty nine through thirty. Proverb, uh, excuse me, Romans nine twenty three, Second Corinthians five five. Timothy 2:14, Revelation 22:14, partakers specifically Romans 1 is it Romans 11:17, Romans 15:27. 1 Corinthians 9:23, Ephesians 3: 6, Hebrews 3:11 and 14. 1 Peter 5:1, 1, 1 John 3 1 through3 about an inheritance, Matthew 5:34, Acts 20:32 20, 26:18, Romans 8:17, Ephesians 1.11 and verse 18, 1 Peter 1:2 and I'll stop there. A Divine Translation. I don't want to cast aspersions on anybody. That's not my point. It's not my place. I've got enough aspersions of my own. But could it be that we have all of this spilled ink and oxygen being taken up out of the room by people who don't honor the law, submit the law, or love the law. I think it is a true statement. I believe it was Dr. Barcelos who brought this up. When we get so focused on one little area of Scripture that we miss the forest for the trees, then we're guilty of not experiencing these three conclusions in our life. doesn't mean we're lost. just means we're misguided, misaligned, out of step. And there's opportunity to be aligned. There's opportunity to come back to the principles of Christ and, and to experience these three conclusions, to, to honor the law, to submit to the law, to love the law. But it requires us to say, I was wrong. I turned from that, and I turned to Christ. Doesn't mean I was necessarily immoral. Doesn't mean I was necessarily a heretic or out of, out of grace. But I was just wrong. And I think that's one of the greatest lessons that we can learn in life, to admit that we were wrong, to repent and turn to Christ. I close with this. It's a memorial in Westminster Abbey. And I had to stop and think a minute. I've been to Westminster and I've seen all the guys and I seem to remember this one for some reason. It's not up front with all the, the big famous guys, but it's there. It's a memorial in Westminster Abbey. And it, it, the author of this particular illustration said it doesn't give a no, there's not a no, more noble expression of these thoughts than this particular monument. It's actually to the Lord John Lawrence, who is the viceroy of India. And on his headstone, it simply says this, it's his name, the date of his death, and these simple words, and I quote, he feared man so little because he feared God so much. As we leave this place tonight, later on this weekend, as we go back to the world that Christ has placed us in, the responsibilities that Christ has set before us, the ministries, the homes, the families. Let us not be guilty of fearing men. Let us fear God. And we can fear God in a reverent way by honoring the law. Certainly by submitting to the law. And certainly by loving the law. Not in an unbalanced way, not to try to earn our salvation. The confession makes that clear. The law can't do that. We know that. That the law is a tutor that points us to Christ. But let's not let that be an excuse for not being a little tighter, a little more precise in our understanding and, and embracing the law. Because to do so means that we are embracing God himself. Because if we honor the law, we are honoring the God who gave the law. If we're submitting to the law, we are submitting to the God who gave the law. And if we are loving the law, it's just the evidence that we love the God who gave the law. So my prayer today, as the Bishop J.C. Ryle said, is that we would never be satisfied with anything less loving God, honoring God, submitting to God by loving, honoring, and submitting to His law. May God be praised as His people follow what He has given to us in His Word. Father, we thank You for the day that You've given to us. We praise You for Your continued goodness, for Your mercy and Your grace, and we simply ask, Father, that in the hearing of Your Word that You would help us in our weakness. Father, we all have gone astray. Even after your regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, the application of the imputed righteousness of Christ, our understanding of our position with you, Father, we still are guilty of not honoring your law. In many ways, we have not submitted to your law. And sadly, Father, it proves that in some measure, we don't truly love your law and by extension, Father, we would have to admit that we don't love you in some ways. And, Father, it ought to break our hearts that we, we're, we feel that way, that we are that way. So, Father, we ask that in your, your grace that you would help us in our weakness, that your Spirit would bring to our remembrance all those things that you have shown us, that your Spirit would convict us of our rebellion and transgression, our sin, In relation to the observance of your law, Father, that he would intercede with words too deep for groanings on our behalf and that you would draw us into repentance. Cleanse us, Father, from this rebellion. Move us into the conformity of your Son. Help us, Father, to love you and to prove it as we bear the fruits of repentance. And that, Father, you would continue to purify people for your own possession. That we might be the salt and the light in the world. We thank you, Father. We praise you. We glorify you. And we ask these things in your precious and holy name.